Welcome, B2B startups, changeups, scale-ups, and grown-ups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm here with my old friend, Adam Taylor, from APM Music. Uh, how long have we known each other, Adam? My God, it must be around 17 to 18 years, something yeah. like that. I've been running APM for... Over eighteen years. When now, when I when I first started working for you, I was in PR. Right. And how, had you just started at that point, or had you been there a while already? I think that we uh, met shortly after I joined. I think within six months. I'd have to go back and look, but certainly within a year. Uh huh. I don't think it was longer than that. And so, seventeen years ago. So this is pre-digital. I mean, this is. I mean, it's not pre-internet, no. but it's certainly internet's not pervasive yet. No, and our website, uh, when I joined the company, didn't have any music. You couldn't play any music on it. So, uh, uh, and we launched into a, a search engine around that time, which took a little bit of time to develop. And, uh, but it was around that time, yeah, early days. And at that time, when you were developing the search engine, there wasn't any off-the-shelf product. You kind of had to build it from scratch, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, no, there was nothing. Uh, there were a couple of things on, um, on uh, CD-ROM. <laughs> <laughs> but there was really nothing that we could really use off the shelf in any way. But we still don't use anything off the shelf. Um, it's all customized. I mean, we're using uh, open source and modern technologies for the underlying architecture and structure of both the data and the systems and programming. But the uh, um, no. Uh, so just to, just to, uh, sort of a once over on the business. Associated Production Music (APM) music is a production music provider, meaning music that's used in for picture. And for games, um, so uh, you've got this huge database of music, library, I, I imagine you call it. You're owned by one of the largest uh, labels, right, EMI? Or? We're actually owned by two, uh, the two largest music publishers in the world, half owned by Universal Music Publishing and half owned by Sony ATV, uh, which bought EMI recently. We were founded by uh, EMI and the predecessor company to Universal in 1983, so we've been a joint venture since we started, we call ourselves a production music library. It's music uh, that is made in service of, of the moving image. And so that could be any kind of audiovisual production, whether it's a TV show, a movie, a video game, a commercial, um, a webisode, uh, a corporate film, or anything else. And also for audio productions. So we do a lot of podcast uh, uh, deals as well and uh, support uh, radio stations all across the country with music that they need for. Uh, promos and commercials and other programming that they produce. So to the extent that you can actually walk back 17 years and put yourself in the same mindset that you were at at that time, uh, I guess, you know, you're looking at technology and you're thinking, wow, this is a great way to fulfill my product, to deliver my product to the customer. Yes? Uh, No question about it. When uh, the library business started, things were on... um, on LPs and even a few things, early, early recordings on 78s, amazingly enough. And uh, then it uh, eventually, and that lasted for a long time, and then it eventually switched to CDs, and thank God CDs are gone, and uh, we moved to digital. And that movement to digital started around the time that I got there. And uh, we used to have six or 700,000 copies of CDs in our warehouse, and now we have zero. And uh, that it was a process that took maybe about five or six years to complete that transformation where we were able to offer the website, and the search engine, and then people 
slowly moved away from physical product. Uh, there are people who still want portable drives because the they don't want to connect to the web to the internet on their systems. But that's uh, these days kind of few and far between. So, so at the beginning, you sort of gravitate towards tech as a way of fulfilling demand and a way of digitizing operations. Yeah, I mean, every part of the uh, supply chain of music has changed from creation to delivery to storage to searchability, discoverability, um, uh, royalty payments, and tracking. And so I, I recognized that early on and that we needed to be in that and really to be able to offer better workflow solutions to clients so that they could find the music that they need because our obligation is to bring in great music and to deliver that music to clients and the... Uh, what's in between is the search engine. So the search engine's obligation and responsibility is to deliver a set of relevant results, which requires really understanding the user. And so that's where marketing ties in a lot, uh, because marketing has to be very deeply involved in really understanding the client and understanding uh, the types of clients and the specific users, which leads into account-based marketing and, and other things. So if you if you could, again, if you could sort of put your mind back 15, 16, 17 years to the point where you've developed this search engine. It's a homegrown solution. You developed it yourself because there is nothing off the shelf to buy. You have to build this thing yourself. Mm -hmm. Now you finally got this search engine that you can use to look through your database and see and find uh, tracks that might work for different uses. Do you remember at that time what some of the challenges were from a sales and marketing standpoint of sort of having this search engine and, and sort of using it to close new business? So the um, at that time, there was really no understanding of the connection between marketing and sales and a website, and um, at least for our company, and I think even in the industry, because uh, websites like that were new, um, there was nothing in the website that uh, related to the specific user. So <clears throat> in that sense, the website as... The features that the website had, the quality of the feature set and the quality of the music that, uh, and the sale search results was an overall value to the account exec when they were selling. And it was an overall value to the customer because it was better than other systems out there. Um, and, but that was the extent of it. It was just the fact of the website that was a quality engine that made a difference in the sales process. So if a, cl a client is looking at two different companies and they like our website better than somebody else's, then they would be more inclined to go with us as a part of the value proposition. Uh, but there was nothing connected. There was no data around the individual user that was being incorporated into the website experience that, that particular person um, encountered. I mean, I was, it's a long time ago, and I mean, I can't even remember, you know, what I had for lunch, you know, two weeks ago. But mm -hmm. do you remember what the salespeople were saying to you at that time about what they wanted, what their needs were to be able to close more business? I think that um, there, there wasn't really much about the website in those days um, and because it was uh, it was also new. Um, the um, some of the the requests were around product to make sure that we have the music that people are asking for and for marketing support, which in those days was really um, email marketing. I mean, there was no mobile 
to speak of. Uh, iPhones didn't exist um, in those days, and there was nothing, there wasn't really an understanding of any kind of digital marketing uh, that would really drive business, really just email blasts. And that was about it. So they wanted more email blasts. And it was as simple as that. <clears throat> was Would you characterize sales at that time as mostly outbound? So, like, you know, smiling and dialing type thing? I mean, how I, are they generating sales? Right. Um, for us, uh, we had um, a lot of it was reactive. And so uh, clients would email or call. And we would react to those things. They would call for a quote request. They would like a contract. So there was a, a good amount of referral marketing, word of mouth. Um, we didn't do much advertising. Uh, we did a bit of PR. You were our PR company. and But we had limited resources to be able to do any kind of meaningful, sustainable PR. And you know there was a feeling that I had that... Uh, if PR was going to be effective, you had to really, really do it on a sustainable basis. You had to su- probably support it with advertising. It was going to be uh, uh, expensive and also very difficult to attribute success to any particular part of the effort. And um, it was a more connected to overall brand marketing than it was to uh, the success of any one particular campaign or if you were driving business to a particular part of the business. So... I think it was really limited, I mean, very limited that way compared to what you can do today. No so, comparison. So how did the salespeople get leads? The, uh, they would research the trades. So they would see that a new show is being produced. There's a production company that started, a network or a studio announced something, um, and they would cold call. Uh, cold call, cold email. Um, they would also ask people that they were already doing business with for referrals, and also people move around a lot in the entertainment industry, so people who were at one company and who really liked us and went to another company uh, would oftentimes uh, come back to us and say, we'd like to do business with you at our new company. So the sales activity was really focused mostly on managing existing relationships and then dealing with the leads when they could find them. And there wasn't a really well-articulated process around or measurement of the leads that we were getting in. At what point does marketing start generating leads? Then or now? Now. I mean, in the evolution of APM, I mean, well, under your sure. you know, Well, now, uh, especially in some of the direction that we're heading in now, uh, um, marketing has a very, very large responsibility uh, to develop MQLs and to send them over to sales, have the right kind. We approach things by market and have a different process and a different kind of set of goals for each of the markets. And you know, for each market, we look at, okay, what's our con- customer retention goals and uh, opportunity uh, to continue with a client so they don't to drop off and how do we increase the amount of dollars that we're doing with a particular client. It's very, very important for us. It's less expensive to keep a client than to get a new one. So we do pay attention and have particular strategies around um, customer retention and those strategies are laid out by market. Um, And so the company thinks about things by market, the sports market, the TV market, the commercial market, etc. Then there is a separate set of goals around customer acquisition. And so marketing plays a lead role in um, understanding the markets, 
in identifying how to utilize all of the different omni-channel opportunities to drive qualified leads over to sales. Our salespeople are quite good at knowing what to do when they get leads. And, of course, you want to get the right kind of leads, both in terms of somebody who actually is interested or has the potential to use the music, uh, is interested uh, to some degree, and is open to being pitched, um, and also that it has the potential to pay at the right level. I don't want to spend a lot of time on leads that are going to generate $100 in a year, you know, so um, I need to focus on bigger opportunities, so marketing has to drive the right kind of leads. And then we have to measure how well we can close them, nurture them, and get a sense of the cost of acquisition of a client, and also lifetime value, which is something I didn't see on here, but I think the lifetime value is critically uh, important. Oh, you do have it on there. Okay, good. So, um, you know, that's the, you set some metrics and targets and you try to hit them and then you A-B test and you do rapid fire iteration um, to optimize. So the Association of Inside Sales puts out a report every year about what the biggest challenges are. And uh, this year, almost half of B2B sales reps said lead quantity and quality was their top challenge. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate with you? Uh, it does. Uh, it depends on which markets. So there are certain markets which are um, easier to grasp and have a clear path forward. Um, and... Um, you know, for the sports market, which we're very strong in, we have a very clear idea how to go about that. You know, in the esports market, uh, which on the surface might sound similar, it actually it isn't. And uh, the esports market is an emerging market, so there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of change, a lot of investment coming in, um, and the uh, so it requires you have to be a bit more um, nimble in figuring out strategically. How and tactically, how to go about grabbing that market? Mm -hmm. So, so in some of these markets that you're working in, the, the the top of the funnel, the size of the top of the funnel is not unlimited. I mean, there are a finite number of players that you're pitching, right? Like, if you look at motion picture, that's a finite world. If you look at television, that's a finite world. I imagine sports is a finite world. And then you get to these developing markets, these emerging markets like esports, or I guess podcasting. And I guess you don't know, right? Because it could be anybody, and what are they really worth, and how do you manage your time so you don't wind up getting lost down the rabbit hole with a bunch of, you know, mm -hmm. leads that probably could be better fulfilled on a self-service basis? I think that the, um, in terms of, uh, like, also in, in infinite potential or no limit to the potential, I think that you have to consider that within the potential of an organization to grab it. So... The, in, in theory, there is certainly a, an, uh, a limit that the amount of business in the sports market isn't unlimited. Um, however, there is so much business out there and growing so rapidly that for all practical purposes, we're not hitting any limit and we're never going to hit a limit because the market is probably, at least for a certain number of years, going to grow faster than any capability we would have to grab all that market share. And so, um, it in other words, it would take years to get to maturity. Um, if you look at the gold rush in California, um, 
it took X number, you know, when, when all these prospectors were coming out to California, there was so much gold that if you had the tools, uh, the support, and the perseverance, you, know, you could probably find some gold. Um, or it, became, it took a long time for that supply to mature, to kind of wear out, where everything was pretty much, you know, you had to work that much harder to get one extra vein of gold. So I look at it in a similar way. I also think that in television, in a way, it's, it is unlimited. It used to be that you uh, a, a network was limited to 168 hours of original programming per year if they indeed chose to have original programming 24-7, which most didn't. Um, but today, through um, streaming services and OTT, it is all just based on the size of the database and, and how many programs you choose to have. So there's no limit to how much programming Netflix could have on its site. Uh, there's no limit to how much programming they can produce. It's just a matter of uh, the economic models and their return on investment calculation so they know how much to spend. So, And again, we are within that part of the curve that is growing enormously. We're not going to get 100% of all business, all new business, but there's plenty of new business to grab in these more mature markets yeah. um, because while Netflix may have the opportunity to produce unlimited programming there's still only one Netflix there's only one Hulu sure so so you mentioned earlier this idea of account based marketing mm-hmm. to, how does that work when you're going after specific customers how do you translate that into a tactical approach the uh, account based marketing to me means that you understand, you, you gather data around the client that comes from a variety of sources. Some of it is just digital data. Um, the online uh, behaviors of the individual, uh, the, the person, not, not just the company, um, and also their activity on social media. And again, omni-channel pulling in of information, as much information as you can get about an individual. Um, and then you use that data and an internal set of rules that you develop to deliver contextual content back to that individual. And um, you do Personalization? Yeah, personalization. You do that on an omni-channel basis so that when... uh, Look, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. The big companies are all doing this. Um, And, you know, you go to a website, then the next thing you know, you're seeing an ad for that product on... uh, on a website or on mobile or, or even in social media. So all of those things are connected. So the more that we can understand and the more we can kind of retarget in all of the different environments is uh, we, we then test the success of that. And it, sometimes you can do the retargeting and it's very annoying and it turns somebody off. So you want to be careful. And um, so for us, um, if we're talking about, say, nurturing existing clients um, or somebody who is a potential client but has signed up for access to our website and is actually actively going on, then we want to know who they are. So if they're a sports client, we're going to deliver sports-related content. If they're an ad agency, the kind of marketing materials and information that they're going to see is going to be different. So maybe 
a video of um, a sports team, if it's a sports thing, or maybe a video of an ad agent, an interview with somebody at an ad agency who had success with uh, one of our songs in one of their big campaigns. So it's contextual delivery of, of information back into the various platforms on which people are engaging with him. So that's really the future. And you overlay that with the brand marketing and the brand identity and the messaging of the brand overall and how you customize that for each of the um, uh, the main markets that you're going after. So over the years, having you know started at this company, you know pre. Well, I didn't start it. But, uh, well, you started at the company, at the company. you know, pre digital, pretty yes. much, mm-hmm. and and now having lived through this this evolution of digital and business, what, can you walk us through maybe some of the biggest challenges that you faced with respect to aligning sales and marketing? to build business and, and close more revenue and sort of how you tackled them, what, what some of those highlights were and what some of those solutions were over the years. I mean, I think that one of the biggest challenges uh, is really the people that you have uh, who are leading sales and who are leading marketing and how they understand that message, how well they can work together and how well they can bring their uh, teams um, together. So uh, it, it it, it has been challenging over the years to do that. I ran into a lot of obstacles of people who really were just focused on marketing um, or just focused on sales and market salespeople who wanted to, they just wanted to do the marketing materials themselves. Um, and then they would complain that they were doing all the marketing materials themselves and why isn't the marketing department doing it? Um, and... Uh, then they're not happy necessarily with the marketing material that's being that the marketing team is doing, or it's the time frame in which it's being done. Marketing has a long list of things, or getting requests from a lot of different departments, and how do you triage that? How do you prioritize that? And uh, so it's taken a while and three different executives to where I think I have the right person, um, and both three people on sales and three people on marketing, coincidentally. Uh, to try to bring it together so that uh, people know how to communicate, that they hear each other, that they're empathetic, um, and that there's an overlay of a way of measuring. And I think that's, besides the human, which is ultimately the most important part, um, the numbers speak for themselves. If you have the data structure properly, that you're gathering the right data, you can measure the results against the goals that you set, then either something is working or it isn't working. So that's been... That's been the biggest challenge because it requires some programming, changes to systems, and changes to data architecture, and it requires data analytics. And we're a small company. How do we get all this stuff done? And so um, it's still a struggle a bit. I mean, we're not where I want to be. Uh, there is still a lot more of bringing these teams together and creating a real um, fully articulated and laid out and agreed upon business process in all of those different areas that I listed before about qualification and nurturing, et cetera. And you have to really document all those things, put the workflows in, and then come up with the creative um, um, content that you can then deliver through those and then have the analytical platform in which you can actually measure the results. And then everybody gets together. Let's say, for example, we're doing something in sports. I've been using that as an example. And between the marketing team and the sports team, they say, hey, we'd like to go after this part of the market, um, college teams, for example. And we think that this kind of content is going to um, be impactful. So we produce that content, we deliver it, and then we see if it's impactful or not. And if it isn't generating 
the returns that we want, we try to figure out why. Is it the content? Is it the market? Is it sales? Who's, uh, wh where's the breakdown? And so the real key is management of people to um, work together on a shared goal, have maybe shared compensation, and uh, the systems to support it. So there has to be an underlying <coughs> infrastructure of systems support to allow uh, the, the all of this to flow efficiently and to be <coughs> to measure it and deliver that in, those insights back into the business so it can uh, iterate. Do you remember any specific watershed technologies that once you got them up and running, it was like, wow, this is amazing? Huh. Um, I think that I mean Salesforce certainly helped. Um, Salesforce has also evolved a lot since the early days. I found it rather cumbersome, but at the same time, it allowed us to structure our sales, our client information in a way that we weren't able to do before. So that was very helpful, and it also sped up the um, ability, uh, the, uh, the, the time frames during how long it took to deal with um, getting and using customer information. So I think that Salesforce was very good, and it's a platform. So you can integrate other technologies into it. The, um, uh, the launching of these digital marketing platforms um, has been important. Um, it's really, I think, like Marketo and Eloqua and HubSpot and Acton and, and now Marketing Cloud uh, are all um, very important and really help to kind of codify the thinking. Uh, so as I, I, I was saying that I think that these marketing automation systems really started to change things and th they've evolved. Some of them are easier to use, some of them are more complex and um, they do take some learning. I think there's a, there's a learning process around mapping out the entire, uh, uh, all of the stages of leads and how you react to them and, and uh, um, uh, so you know we've been we've learned a lot, uh, but those systems have really helped. Marketing Cloud, I think, is the the right solution for us uh, because it really integrates in properly with Salesforce, which is great and easy to use, and um, that's uh, made a big change in how we go about uh, things. We also have uh, we're about to implement a system called Dynamic Yield uh, that d delivers contextual content into um, widgets on the, on the website pages, and so based on a set of rules and, uh, and data that you collect from a variety of different data sources. And we're looking at some of the other CMS platforms. Right now we're on Drupal, um, and we're, there are some new kind of things that are called headless CMS systems that, are, uh, that allow for easier manipulation and getting content, relevant content into people and being able to measure the results. So that's kind of the next wave. The next thing, uh, oh, so Solar Lucene and Elasticsearch have really been fantastic open source, very fast platforms for delivering search results. So uh, that's been very, very important and now we're going to be, uh, over time, making sure we have the data architecture to tie in search results, the relevant marketing material, so that the search results are contextual as well. How do you approach data science? How do you make sure that you understand the customer journey from a data standpoint? The, um, by bringing in experts in data architecture. 
and getting adv taking advantage of the latest thinking out there. It's something that's constantly evolving. We have a data warehouse and a data cube, and and but now the technologies have moved to other things, data lakes and other systems, and obviously data visualization tools like Tableau and Power BI and Looker and other ones that sit on top of the data. The real you have to have the fundamental underlying architecture properly done. You want to try to bring data into your systems in an unstructured way because you don't know how you're going to want to analyze it. So you structure it on the way out instead of on the way in, and uh, which is much more around what a data lake is versus a data warehouse or cube, which is structuring it on the way in. Um, and then it becomes harder to change and, and, and things. So the modern, the newest developments of analytical and data structure technologies have been uh, are, are game changers, I think. And because the responsibility is to deliver meaningful insights back to the business that it can use in an actionable time frame. So um, all of those things are, are very important. You're a numbers guy. Partially. I mean, you, you know, I mean, that's... You oversee the numbers. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I imagine you've got to look at some of these data services and think, my gosh, is that causation? Is it correlation? Does it really affect my business? What What is being done that you like and what's being done that you don't like, specifically around the use of data to try to get real business intelligence? What I don't like is gathering data... Um, and not using it um, or not really understanding what the data is telling you. So it's easy to collect data, uh, but then you end up with this massive amount of data and you don't really know what's important to you. So really the key is really on the business side in a way more than the data side. You use the data to inform your instincts and your strategy, but you have to really think, oh, what do I feel is going to move the business? And whatever my customers are going to react to, what's going to drive effort in the internal team, what kind of information is actually going to make a difference. And we're never going to guess 100% correctly up front. So for me, the, the, uh, the proof is in the pudding, meaning you have to test. And you, just, you want to do rapid-fire testing. And if you can do rapid-fire testing without, uh, where the, the work can be done on the marketing side, not on the technology side, that you don't have to engage technology every time you want to make some kind of change and test something, uh, that's critical. And um, so it's data, but it's also understanding the business, understanding your customer and making intelligent decisions about what to test, measuring the results, making rapid-fire changes. Let's, let's close this up with a discussion about um, customer success because that's you know what you mentioned earlier, lifetime value. That's where it comes in. I mean, you can do all this work to get a customer, and then if they're not happy and they leave and they churn, someone else picks them up. You've kind of done the work for your competitor right. by educating the customer about what they want, what they need, and what they should expect, and now someone else is going to deliver it. Um, what have you learned from a technology standpoint about um, enabling customer success to work together with sales and marketing um, to contribute to a greater lifetime value of a customer? The, the first thing is to understand uh, the range of things that a particular customer in a particular market may be looking for. and. With a, perhaps one of the most important things is how much engagement is the right engagement. 
And so some people are going to just get annoyed if there's too much stuff, and other people are going to feel, why are they reaching out to me? Why aren't they reaching out to me? So um, relevant contextual information is the most important thing rather than just generalized information. If it's generalized and it's not targeted to what they need, you may be wasting that opportunity and you may annoy them and you then you can't send an email out every day to people. So using technology to understand uh, the customer to see, to study customer behavior, capture the information, study the behavior, come up with the right set of rules that re-engage with them um, and then test that and see how that works. So to me, it's extremely important. If we have a client who signed a contract with us, we have to understand how often to engage with them. And, and we try to do it on an omni-channel basis, but in a reasonable way. And so how many emails do we send out to them? How much do we hit up their social media in some way? Uh, how much uh, contextual content is on the website back when they come to it? Um, are there other ways to engage? And... Um, then um, hopefully that gives us the information we need about how to preserve and increase um, lifetime value. Does customer success participate in the live events you do? Because I know you do events at NAB and different uh, trade gatherings. Is customer success involved in that? Is it all sales? Is it marketing? So our customer success team is also kind of a sales team. In a, in a, there's a sales support team. So they're under or with the account executives who are the, have the primary responsibility for a particular account. But they deal with a lot of the self-service accounts, but they also deal with the day-to-day -day activities that a client needs. So they're on a, on a human level, they're very, very involved in uh, the happiness of a customer. And um, we always bring them to the events. Well, always, I don't know about always, but almost always bring them to the event. So we have customer success people at NAB and at other trade shows that we go to. If we have a, uh, like a sporting event we're taking people to or something, there's often at least a one person from, from the customer success team. Final question. I, I want to talk about the difference between you know a finite and an infinite market, whereas finite might be B two B and infinite might be consumer. Right. So, um, you know, Apple Podcasts when they opened up Apple Podcasts to everybody, everybody and their brother made a podcast. You know, the long tail of that opportunity from a music licensing standpoint, I've got to think is significant. Mm -hmm. uh, Spotify's not getting big into podcasting; they just opened it up. Mm -hmm. They're seeing a lot of traction in the long tail with respect to the number of. Producers that are uploading content. I imagine there's still a lot of copyright theft going on, where people just steal music and put it on there. You've got—I know you've got technology to sort that out. Uh, you know, get people in line. But do you think, or are you thinking about some sort of a, uh, a music licensing to consumers service that might allow people who are making podcasts for smaller audiences, or maybe even just home movies? Um, or maybe even just corporate presentations that are being used internally to be able to have access to music, maybe on a self-service basis, without you know bogging down your sales team, but still growing revenues. Yeah, we are building out the uh, the self-service platform, so we will be able to hit people who are wanting music for podcasts, for social media videos, YouTube videos, um, whatever that are on a smaller level, who are willing to pay by credit card, get the license when they actually download rather than getting the license after they report their usage. 
and those are the kind of the two different paths. Somebody is either uh, an enterprise-level client who has a deal with us or an understanding with us. Others are, let's just call them a consumer, for lack of a better phrase, and um, they're going to listen to the music, and like any other e-commerce product, uh, if they want it, they would buy it. So, yes, we are in the process of building that out because there's no question that there is a long tail there and millions of people who are entrants into the market, and many of those people also might want to become professional clients. They may use us on a personal level or social media level, and then obviously maybe one one of them may do a big webisode series or a TV show or whatever. Can you say when we should expect to see something like this, or do you have a sense of when that might be? Available? I never like to promise dates, right. and uh, technology is complicated. And uh, but you know, soon, soon. I don't want to lock in a date. Right, right. A year. I don't want to lock in a date. Okay. All right. <laughs> Keep Sounds my uh, competitors uh, surprised. Awesome. Uh, Thanks, Adam. You're Appreciate welcome. it. Thank you. Interesting stuff. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.